Hello, and welcome to Benyo Chats. If you're curious about the world, this show is for you. Is eating strawberries feminine? On this episode, I speak to Penn Vogler. Penn is a food historian. Her latest book is Stuffed, A History of Good Food and Hard Times in Britain. We discuss what British food history tells us about being British today across culture, class, and society. Hope you enjoy the show. Do like, subscribe, or review as it helps others find the podcast. And with that, here's my chat with Penn. Penn, welcome. Thank you so much. Let's start with strawberries. I have a trio of questions on strawberries. Is it feminine to eat strawberries? Why do we eat strawberries with cream? And do you think the British consider strawberries a very British fruit and maybe the most British fruit we have? Strawberries are such a good question uh, to start with. So is it feminine to eat strawberries? This comes from a post I saw on Reddit when the young man said, my dad, I love strawberries, but my dad keeps on telling me it's feminine, it's girly, I think it was Mm. the word he used, to eat strawberries. Is it? And so he was asking people for their opinion. And lots of people said, well, sure, it is slightly girly to eat strawberries, to eat fruit. Um, And lots of people said that's completely nonsense. But I just found it really interesting that there was this perception that they were sort of feminine somehow. And I think it fits into this broader discovery that kind of people who do a lot of work on health and health and eat diet and health in the community have this kind of underlying discovery that women eat more fruit than men. And nobody knows really why it is. Is it because they like it more? Is it because they want to be healthy? There's a perception in some communities uh, of men that fruit isn't kind of, it isn't, just isn't what you eat. And I found this fascinating. And um, I also, one of the other things that had really interested me about strawberries is how supermarkets have completely kind of owned them. They've come to have this massive strawberry season. And when you have... Um, when you have strawberry season, you get you uh, you get newspaper articles saying, you know, which are the best strawberries? Are they Sainsbury's or Lidl or Tesco? And and which is extraordinary, which is ridiculous, because strawberries are not made by supermarkets. Strawberries come their ends El Santa or their you know some kind of variety, but it's, supermarkets have done this very clever job of kind of identifying themselves very closely with strawberries and they sell absolutely from selling from them being a quite a small kind of niche treat they now in summertime outsell bread for example sometimes and i found that really those two pieces of information really interesting and i think that um supermarkets when they sort of emerged in this country in the 1950s had to really sell themselves to women had to really kind of say this is a new way of shopping they had to explain how they worked because it wasn't obvious to everybody that you went into a supermarket took a basket and helped yourself some people are outraged at the you know that kind of diy way of shopping and i think strawberries and fruit were one of the ways that um supermarkets began to kind of entice women shoppers. If you go into a supermarket now, fruit and veg, always at the front. Strawberries, really close. You can see them. Whereas the meat, the stuff that women are not that keen on buying, you know, according to the kind of various kind of consumer surveys, slightly more kind of tucked away in the back. 
Yeah, and that touches on a couple of things. So one is this idea that meat is manly. Yes. So sort of strawberries are the opposite. And how we've come to associate things like the, the season. And obviously we have tennis and Wimbledon um, and all of that. And I wanted to pick up something on what you said about how it was kind of a, in, enticing women into the shop as well as how varieties and things uh, like that work. Because when I was reading that section, the way you described the pre-supermarket era or when it was that, that you used to queue at mm. places like mm. your butcher mm-hmm. and your greengrocer. And then in rationing times, and I had the sense maybe before, the queue became a kind of social construct Mm -hmm. so one is the conversations you had Mm -hmm. around the queue particularly rationing and then the intersection with class and who queues and Mm -hmm. how you queue and all of that and there is a sentiment that brits talk about weather we talk about tea um, and we talk about queuing a lot to much to kind of um the laughter of of a lot of other cultures and it occurred to me that actually has deep roots about why we queue and how we queue and, and this entry into it. Is that how you read um, some of our queuing? And do you think part of that uh, dismantling of the queue and getting them into to supermarkets really wraps up into supermarkets and how they use strawberries? I think that's absolutely right. I mean, you can still queue in a supermarket, but um, the idea about supermarkets is that you don't queue. But I think... Um, the queue, yes, you're absolutely right. In the, in the Second World War, for example, people had to rash it had to be registered to get their coupons in a particular shop and interestingly most people were registered with a co-op so the co-op was a huge part of people's social lives and kind of consumer lives at at that time but you'd have to queue particularly in rationing time and as you say you know people would there was a a lovely um in one of the kind of surveys that an academic surveys somebody uh, quoted this Scottish lady who said, "You know, if it wasn't for the queue, I wouldn't get a laugh all week." Mm. You know, clearly the queue, the, that queue was a sort of social occasion for people, particularly for women. You know, you do see these pictures, don't you, of in the First World War when there wasn't rationing and there were huge problems with kind of dearth of food uh, and they introduced rationing much probably much too late but you see pictures enormous pictures of people queuing and sometimes men you know with their overcoats and again in the second world war in the 50s sometimes men but predominantly women and so the queue does have that social um sort of status but it also for some people they were you know young women particularly women's entered the labour market they felt they didn't have time to do it you know totally understandably and some women also found that kind of being served quite um it was quite intrusive you know the they'd fa- they'd feel that the supermarket is, uh, the, not the supermarket, sorry, the shop assistants would kind of know a bit too much about their business. And one lady that I quote said, you know, if I bought something unusual, it would get to the ears of my mum, my mother. And my mother would be saying, why are you spending, your, you know, to the person who's yeah, you get judged. Them. You get a bit judged. And obviously, you know, we're very judgy in this um in this in this country so i think the queue had an interesting positive and negative kind of social role for people and then the supermarkets come along and then they just decide to sort of do away with it and one of the things that um the the supermarket came in like i say most people in the war were registered with the co-op the co-ops were really big part of our community and they after the war there was and, and during the war there was a 
a labour shortage. And so the supermarkets had to, all those kind of early shops had to figure out ways of getting people to serve themselves because they couldn't have, they couldn't recruit um, staff. And to their surprise, they discovered they sold more. And that was, that was revolutionary. And the government uh, in the 50s, in trying to kind of find ways of kind of coping with this labour shortage, actually sponsored Sainsbury's, the Sainsbury's managers, directors, to go to America to figure out how this kind of self-serve thing happened. And um, they came back and sort of, you know, full of ideas of, you know, what self-service looked like. And this idea that actually you would sell more was key to... Um, to the to the idea of the kind of supermarket, and although it was in some, it was supported by the government because of the labour problems, but in fact it has produced this massive overconsumption problem in our societies, and it feeds into this problem where you have you know to buy two get you know buy three get one free or whatever it is you know, and there is probably in supermarkets too much food, and so much of it goes to waste. And but that I think has its roots in that kind of like how do we sell more from the, the kind of nineteen forties and nineteen fifties. And that's really fascinating because that's a that's a part of social change and it it's happened and you can think of other sort of really big social change movements like the end of slavery or, or women's votes and things. But if you if you think about the systemic problems that we what we have now, for instance, obesity or nutrition or potentially um, overeating or food waste, it would seem that we might need to have social change potentially the other way or in different ways. And it does happen. And the roots of how un understanding that happen are really fascinating. The other symbol that the strawberry struck me is, and you mentioned it, is that we have El Santa. People mm. would even know that mm. as a variety. But if you go back in time, when you think of all sorts of fruit and veg varieties, we call them heritage and mm. heirloom. They had shorter seasons. They had different properties. So if you're doing mass agriculture, you want everything to um, ripen at the same time in a certain sort of way. Whereas if you're doing it in a home garden, you would want it to ripen sort of slowly over the season so you can, uh, so you can pick some. And our obsession with strawberries means that we have... Uh, fewer varieties which you can get almost year round of a certain kind of thing and very red very sweet I guess as, mm -hmm. as well and, and that seems to have been almost uh, I guess not quite an accident because it's intentional but kind of giving consumers what they seem to want sweetness and it all the way round uh, driven by that and I think that seemed to be another symbol that I got from the strawberry that although it's a symbol it has all of these downsides with it and I'm I'm interested in whether you think that is and, and to what extent that we might have to try and nudge away from that I mean having strawberries you know having British grown strawberries through you don't actually get them British grown throughout the year you know there are the sort of months where they just won't grow because of our climate and so far for example no British grown strawberry has quite managed to crack the Valentine's Day market. You know, right. so all those kind of Valentine's strawberries are flown in from Morocco or Egypt or whatever. I think um, that process that you've just described sort of underscores two things. One is how incredibly powerful the supermarkets have become. So they've adopted the strawberry as their fruit. And that means they've gone to the strawberry growers and said, OK, I want the impossible. Because as you were saying, 
different strawberries had different qualities. Um, you know, they might ripen early, they might ripen late, they might be sweet, they might be juicy, they might be long lasting, um, you know, they might have a particular taste, they might be quite robust, able to sort of cope, cope with travel. Um, but until fairly recently, you couldn't really get strawberries that were all those things. And the supermarkets said to strawberry growers, that's what we want. We want you to just crack the, the code, the strawberry code, do the impossible. And amazingly, they sort of more or less have. And so we now, you know, in Britain, I'm talking about, we now have strawberries sort of probably sort of eight, nine months of the year. And then we fly them in when we don't have them. Um, but going back, you know, that's obviously an unusual thing. You know, the strawberry, a lot of fruit was very, very sort of, um, it was a special treat. It was quite elite. It was ve always very associated with Wimbledon. You know, that that association has been going on since the 19th century, just because Wimbledon happened um, at, the, at the time that the strawberry season was kind of at its peak. Um, and although the strawberry season now is much, much longer, we've kept that association, which is great, you know, which is nice. And people have news items about how many tons of strawberries are eaten at Wimbledon, and it's massive. Um, but that kind of d deliberate sort of growing of the strawberry to try and sort of um, keep pace with the consumer has quite a long history. And initially the French were the masters or the mistresses of it, mostly actually the masters. Um, and they managed to get what we now think of as a modern strawberry by getting the Chilean strawberry which was quite sweet and the kind of and the European or kind of the wild strawberry that was kind of kind of t much tinier and sort of bring them together in what's now the kind of the modern kind of strawberry cultivars which which tastes quite kind of pineapple mm. quite quite pineapple really really delicious um and that that I think those interrupted in France by the French Revolution, picked up again by Europe, uh, by British strawberry growers, and the French are kind enough to call, you know, call us, call the British the kind of the masters of the strawberry growing or whatever it is. Um, and so there was a very sort of, a, a very kind of strong British pride in all the stuff that they kind of managed to, you know, these kind of new cultivars that they'd managed to make. And I guess some people, though, would argue that that's just been a great thing. You get it all in one and consumers like it and they just eat lots of it. Mm -hmm. But I think one of your points is that the perhaps the more subtle problems with that lack of diversity uh, within that and what it represents in the, in the food system mm -hmm. has more pitfalls than people might expect. I think... Um it it fits it falls into sort of a couple of different camps it falls into the sustainability the camp you know this idea that we are pushing our soil and our earth to produce and produce and produce you know strawberries crops any kind of um any kind of food and also then flying them you know the idea of flying strawberries from egypt is a little bit crazy but you know that's now the world economy isn't it you know Egypt or Kenya or whatever or Morocco depends on those on that for their income um, but there's also um, it also fits into this idea of of sort of security I suppose you know we have we haven't been at war for since the second world war in 
on British soil. And in the First World War and the Second World War, we discovered that we had huge problems with national food insecurity. We imported so much food because we were an industrialising nation. We switched our attention from growing food to growing industrial stuff, you know, to making cutlery or fabrics or, you know, machines or whatever it was from the 19th century. And we've moved our attention away from producing food. And it meant that we were very vulnerable in times um, of kind of food dearth, particularly when it was kind of international. We've seen this again. We saw this in the pandemic. We've seen this in the kind of post-Brexit kind of wobble about, you know, how to, you know, when you suddenly introduce new um, legislation and restrictions yeah. and forms and things that you got to fill in and we've seen our shelves empty much more quickly than we expect them to much more quickly than Europe has done and so one of the questions that our government should be thinking about and probably doesn't very much is how food secure are we um, and that question of how much you import food is 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 very much part of the kind of the green transition. You know, it's very important and it's one that our governments are not terribly good at dealing with. But they should be also, it's the job of the government to defend the country. And that boringly includes to feed the country. Yeah, um, I think and that's something that kind of has got yeah. a bit lost. And is symbolised by, by the challenges of the strawberry. I, I think if I remember the stats correctly... And around about 1950, having come out of that, 60 to 70 percent of food uh, was grown um, in the UK for the UK after going to that. And now it's down to maybe 20 to 30 percent. So it's dropped something like that. I think now we probably import about half. Half. Okay. About. I, I think, you know, it depends on where you get your stats from. Before the First World War, it was higher. It was yep. about 60 percent. And there was a definite decision between the wars to try and do something about that. There was a there was this. There was this understanding in the 30s particularly that British agriculture was on its knees yeah. and it needed support. And things like, you know, the Milk Marketing Board come out of that acknowledgement that actually maybe it is the government's role to not let farmers go completely to the wall because maybe we do need to feed, you know, our kids with milk and cheese and, we, you know, we do need mm -hmm. a kind of an agricultural to feed the whole of us um and since uh yeah and since the kind of second half of the 20th century it's, it's it varies around 50 percent um well that's quite a good segue for me into thinking about sugar yeah so that's another element and it, as perhaps i'm quite lucky that coming from uh china chinese diaspora malaysian and singapore roots um we really don't have uh, puddings mm. it's not part of, of what we eat maybe we'd actually have a little bit of fresh fruit at the end of the meal yeah. um, but our family never really had them if we had puddings or dessert they were very what I consider English those kind of puddings and that which are always uh, really sweet and even in Asian food today we have sugar within dishes and we think mm. about for the four flavors and balancing them but apart from kind of small niches, uh, we don't really. So I, I thought that was quite interesting and, and that history of sugar that I was reading in your book and also intertwined with the way that uh, fruits uh, earlier on were kind of considered a little bit evil or like be aware of them. Yes. So this is this whole, you know, should you let your children eat fruit? And then this resurgence of sugar and, and how it's been used uh, through history. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, were you surprised when you were researching into that and, and, and what's been and what do you think has maybe been 
mis- most misunderstood about how or what's understood about how sugar's been used through history, particularly within the British food history? Yes, it's such a good question. It's interesting because I, I was in Hong Kong in um, in June and we went to have tea in a, you know, in a Hong Kong tea house. And I love afternoon tea. It's, you know, it's the thing. I mean, I, you know, I kind of love cake and I love sugar and, uh, you know, in its in its place. But I was really delighted that the you know, the dim sum that comes with the tea in the tea house is all savoury. Yeah. You know, maybe a tiny bit of sweetness like you'd use spice for sweetness. But and that's very much how we used to use sugar in British cuisine as a sort of flavour enhancer. You know, um, I say British cuisine. Nobody, nobody ever thought <laughs> that the Brits had a cuisine. But, you know, so in the in the in the medieval, in the Tudor period, right up to the 18th century, sugar was something that you used in the sort of rather as you do um salt as a flavor enhancer and then increasingly as you know we as our kind of uh you know our colonial ambitions grew up we recognized that we could exploit carrot the caribbean we could grow you know we could have the kind of sugar plantations and all the horrors and the slavery and the kind of iniquities that that involved um and sugar sort of I think two things happened happened with it. It was became those those kind of sugar plantations had a very strong hold on the kind of British government at the time, and so the idea was that they they had to be supported. They had to give an, a free and ready market for their produce of sugar to Britain, and so that was a sort of it was a kind of government you know kind of strategy as it were and you know very early on it was a strategy that was involved you know with actually in the in the triangular slave trade i mean the um the brother of charles the second started this thing this d- disgusting thing called the royal african country company that had a you know was had ships going doing the kind of the slave triangle and all that kind of idea of sugar just sort of booming into onto the British market sort of starts from about the 17th century and so in a way the market the market was sort of forced in Britain it was kind of created because it was convenient it was p- politically convenient but at the same time you have later you know you have industrialization you have poor people who are not growing their own food and sugar becomes a sort of replacement food it becomes a kind of replacement energy it's kind of instant hit it's quite often you might kids would be given sugar with jam you know the strawberries that we were talking about most kids would see a sort of taste the strawberry not as a strawberry but as a kind of layer of cheap red sugar essentially sugar sugar paste with a bit of sort of um flavoring in and it came in you know in in treacle or golden syrup or whatever and um it was often a kind of replacement for food that there were these heartbreaking little um interviews with kids in the um by henry mayhew who taught, you know who interviews very kind of poor people in the in london in the 1840s and this girl says you know uh i you know i, I have sugar bread and jam for breakfast bread and jam for lunch bread and jam for tea what I would really like is some meat. And I have a taste of meat, you know, once every couple, you know, once every few months, once a year or something. That's what she wanted. Whereas now we sort of think of, we've come to think of sugar as a, as a sort of permanent treat mm. rather than that replacement. So I think 
that's a sort of definite move. The other thing about sugar that was very, really did surprise me actually, is that the the move to kind of say that sugar is a thing that kids should be eating that happens really early on, and there was a big kind of row with with uh, doctors in the 18th century between the ones who said it's natural for kids to eat sugar, babies, infants to eat sugar. And if you if you if you want to test its naturalness, then make a little water pap, you know, flour and water, one with sugar and one without, and you'll see that it's, you know, your infant smacks its lips at the one with, e- easily eats sugar. And of course, now we know that if you introduce sugar into a child's diet very early on, they eat more and more of it and they taste it less and less. And so they need more and more. It's, it has kind of works a bit like in that kind of drug sort of way. Um, and it has all kinds of, it feeds into problems of kind of ill health and dental caries. And uh, it's now coming out that it's possible. It's possibly bad for kids' uh, attention and and all the rest of it, spans and all the rest of it. But that move to kind of say sugar is a natural thing for children rather than a small bit of kind of flavor enhancer that happened that's a move that happens early on and then companies like nestle pick up on that and start to kind of put sugar into there so all those victorian kind of baby foods all had sugar in um and and i don't know if they still do i should go and have a look actually but they've probably got kind of sugar replacements things that don't sound like sugar but probably are i hadn't quite realized how how early it was and and sugar's been a big symbol in this country because i remember reading about uh, the sugar boycotts and it's yes, really yes. kind of one of the first fair trade or I do a lot of work within sustainable investment so it's really interesting that that's a kind of boycott investment piece which was probably uh, quite a critical component uh, in terms of the debates around slavery yes well thinking about substitutes I was also reading and I was it made sense but I was initially surprised so is it really true that Yorkshire pudding, which is this bread and batter <laughs> accompaniment we have famously uh, to roast beef, which is probably uh, one of the things which is considered a very British meal, yeah. was really intended so that the male house, uh, head of the house, could simply eat more meat. So everyone got filled up on this bread batter thing, which now people really kind of like, but before was simply so that the man could eat more beef. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because I grew up in Yorkshire and I learned that in... Uh in some history lesson and I was so shocked because I grew up in the 70s 80s or something when you know we'd become much much more child-centered and it was so such a shock to realize that children were so much lower down the pecking order Mm. you know in the kind of 19th century and children in a lot of families they might have been loved and just as much as children today but they were economic actors parents needed them to go out to work um, when they were 12, 14, 16, or even younger than that, you know, depending on the time, because obviously we, um, in, the, in the 19th century, they started to introduce education acts. And um, so Yorkshire pudding is this, uh, starts to sort of emerge in the, I mean, recipe, it probably existed in some form for a long time, but recipes for it start to emerge in the 18th century. And it does definitely have a reputation in Yorkshire as a it can only be made in yorkshire properly yeah. <laughs> if you if you go down south they'll give you something rubbish yeah they'll give you 
batter pudding or something, which isn't the real thing. But um, and you know, Yorkshire, remember, has the had you know had energy, had the coal fields. You could have a really bright, sparkling coal fire. Your beef could be kind of whizzing round, you know, on a spit in front of a really hot fire. Get a Dutch oven uh, or get a kind of tin. Put your batter pudding under the tin, and the heat of all that heat will help it rise. Um, and so it does become associated with a kind of special occasion. And yes, so in families, I've got, rec- there are fantastic records of people saying, you know, in families, you'd start off, everybody would have a slice of Yorkshire pudding just to take the edge off their appetite. And then the man, if there's the meat, the man, you know, the man gets the most of the meat, you know, even if the man is not, I mean, we're talking about the 19th century here early 20th century even if the man is not doing a kind of big energetic you know industrial kind of job if they're a clerk or work on a railway or something they still have that status that they get the meat there's going back to what we were saying earlier about you know fruit is for women meat is for men there's very that 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 idea was has a very very long roots in this country um and then the kids would get what's left and you know if it's if it's meat like a rabbit or something then the mum has to kind of police this divide. She has to kind of give the man the best bit of it. And she has to have something and she has to share out the rest with the kids, you know. And I quite came across extraordinary stories of um, families who would, the man would be given something tasty for his tea. He'd mm. be given like some kipper or some herring or an egg or something. And if he was feeling very indulgent towards his kids, he'd give them like the skin of the smoked fish. Or he'd give them like the top of the egg or something for tea, you know. And tea in Yorkshire is what we call dinner. You know, it's the main meal. You'd have at five or five or six or seven o'clock in the evening. So the the way that children is very interesting. The way that children's status has changed over the centuries, but also how our perception of children's right to food has changed, and with status has come this idea that children have the right to eat what makes them happy yeah and if it's if it's perceived that they're happy by eating puddings or sweets or coca-cola that's the job of the mum to make them happy whereas actually as we know long term it that is not going to promote kind of it might promote in, in immediate happiness, but not long-term yeah. welfare. I was really interested in seeing those uh, long-term roots. I mean, there was a couple of things I, I noted down. One was when the male head of the household went for his weekly uh, meal out. That could be the meat-free day <laughs> at home. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, great, mm-hmm. we don't have to eat meat now. And, and that kind of echoed, right, you know, meat-free days that we have. And that actually, you referred to those education acts and how children became became more aware of, of the rights and agency of children and, and perhaps this effect going through that is now maybe children have too much rights and agency over how they, they like to eat. But that essentially the more progressive politicians or the progressive wings at that time actually pushed back the other way because they said, well, children need a right to work because for poorer families, it was really necessary for children to go out. And if they were going to be sort of stuck in school and not earning, that it was going to be um, economic poverty and that whole whole idea. And then, well, if children like sweets like it is today, then maybe they should do. And what is the role of, say, parenting or even or even the state um to direct or or influence um influence that i found was really interesting and i hadn't really appreciated 
how deep some of these roots go. So my father-in-law is a fisherman, is a coarse fisherman. Actually, he's got into the uh, Guinness Book of World Records for his coarse fishing, and he's been a fisherman for the 40 over Amazing. over years near Farnham and has talked about the rivers. And so I understood uh, a little bit about that and how he considers it and the commons. And I guess, you know, you would say it's a very working class um, pursuit, particularly how the fishermen there think about it. And, you know, the difference between fly fishing and why salmon might be considered aristocratic. But I hadn't realized it goes back thousands of years, really, um, or certainly hundreds, rather than just sort of uh, tens. And that divide is how we think about now, you know, where um, we might eat salmon and not really carp, although actually carp's a great Asian fish and even is celebrated in places like Poland, where it isn't here because it's considered essentially, I guess, a poor person's fish or working class fish or fish also of the commons. Whereas salmon is still, you know, you've got laws about it. You have fly fishing and you have estates uh, going all the way back to 1066 and ev even uh, previously. Um, how do you view that roots of uh, fish and that dichotomy today? And um, I guess we're going to come on to in the enclosures as well. But this part of your work on, on class and things, but it really seems to be very embedded in, in the food history uh, we have today and I hadn't really appreciated how far back something mm. simply like fish and whether you have freshwater fish or not or salmon is so embedded in our history. Yeah that really surprised me because I'd always thought that this this notion that the Brits don't really eat fish very much I'd always thought that came from the Reformation and that fish was considered sort of slightly popish because it's what you have on Fridays instead of eating meat. But in actual fact, when I was writing this, I read some absolutely fascinating uh, kind of archaeological research and papers that say that the archaeological records, and I, I, I just find archaeology extraordinary what they can do, you know, with kind of analysis, the way that they kind of, you know, look into the tiny, tiny bones or kind of look at the bones of something and they can figure out what that thing has eaten. Um, but it seems that actually fi fish eating fell off a cliff with the Neolithic. And like you say, thousands of years ago, so the Neolithic, probably around 4,200 BC, about when this idea of farming, so the Neolithic, Neo, obviously, New Lithic is that the, the period. It's the period when we start to farm rather than uh, become hunter-gatherers. And it's not, it's it's probably not an immediate thing. It's, you know, there's evidence that hunter-gatherers did use dogs to kind of, you know, uh, to kind of round up wild animals, you know, in a kind of livestock kind of way. So it was probably a, a, a gradual transition. But what does happen is that we seem to just very quickly stop eating fish. Not river fish, you know, even even communities that are by rivers and communities that are by sea, they, they, the, 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 it just drops off, falls out of their diet. And it must be something to do with ideas I'm imagining it's something to do with identity. I mean, we don't know. We'd need a time machine to really find out. But is it because we're going, no, we're, we're farming people, we are meat-eating people, therefore we don't eat fish? And I think even that kind of non-fishiness in our, you know, and it's the same in Ireland, interestingly. It's the same in kind of northern parts of, um, you know, in Scotland, northern parts of England, across, across England. Um, and I wonder whether that kind of unfishiness 
has from you know those thousands of years ago has stayed with us and so we do embrace fishing as a sport for fishing is very much a, a you know a, a line to sport like your is it your granddad that does uh, my father your father-in-law that does course fishing yeah yeah and and it emerged and that kind of course fishing and um and fly fishing that kind of difference but so fly fishing rivers fast flowing water course fishing ponds lakes canals and that kind of emerged all probably again in the kind of industrial, you know, the 19th century. Because before that, everybody ate carp. Carp, if you look at um, Isaac Walton, you know, the, uh, the complete angler, carp is one of the many fish that you expect to catch and eat. And carp have this reputation for being quite subtle, S-U-B-T-I-L, mm-hmm. and crafty, but delicious, you know. And then we stop eating carp carp becomes the fish of ponds and canals and ponds and canals are where the working classes go and fish because they're easier to access you don't need to own the land around them and and trout and salmon is where the you know where you fish if you've got kind of status and land and all the rest of it and so carp kind of falls out and out of the it's partly a class thing, but it's also a governing the commons thing, which is something you mentioned, which I found completely fascinating. So all these anglers say, right, there is a limited amount of fish in these waters. We've got to introduce some rules. We can't just get rid of them. And these are the rules and we're all going to pretty much adhere to them. Um, and they do for decades and centuries. And it, from an, as an outsider, I'm not a fisher person, but as an outsider, it appears to be very effective and work very well. Um and they still adhere to the rules uh, today. So obviously you have fishing licenses and the like, uh, but they manage that. And you you mentioned something which does seem to be true. So you, you, you catch a carp um, and you'll put it back. Um, photograph and then, yourself, obviously. Yeah, exactly. You take <laughs> yes. a photograph, so you put it back. And they are meant to get craftier. So some of the most famous carp have names. Yes, yes. And you try and catch them for the 18th time because... Yeah. By the 18th time, they've got all of the other 17 yeah. tricks. They're yeah. not going to have that. Yeah. And it becomes, we know there's this carp which lives in this pond, but we haven't been able to catch him for a couple of years yeah. because exactly. he's wise yeah. to all our tricks now. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And they're so huge. That. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, they get, and they get really big. But I hadn't appreciated that whole, uh, that element of the commons and going back and how the laws which sort of changed around uh, 1066 and where where it was and, and the like. And I, I guess this brings us to um, your really interesting writing around enclosures. And obviously we have this a little bit today, what is common land and, and what is not. But I hadn't really appreciated how in, you could argue it's one of the key defining moments mm. of British society mm. that where where you took... I think you have this phrase where you take the kind of uh, common land and the acorn and they and they get turned into bacon and pig and things things like that and the and the commons were really how a whole strata of society uh, would live and that essentially there was a kind of class history power all of that warfare which sort of happened mm. and the enclosures happened and it completely changed our um, our way of life and then really resonates to things today. I'd be interested in how, and how you reflect on that and what are the maybe the key things which still resonate today and, and what you found when you were looking about that, which maybe either most surprised you or you think most people should know about the history of enclosures. Yeah, I was, um, th- this, the whole book started with this concept of the, of the enclosures, actually, because when I was writing my last book on Scoff, I hadn't appreciated how dramatic 
the enclosures were for the kind of economy of many kind of rural people. Um, and the enclosures happened over a long period. The first were in Tudor times, the last was in the 1920s, I think. Um, but the height of them was the kind of 19th, 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, but particularly 18th century. Um, and they dovetail so closely with the move to the cities for kind of, you know, for industry. And we, um, so what happens with the enclosures is land is nominally owned by a landowner. It might be the church, it might be a lord, it might be the king. Um, but there's a, there are, there were ancient rights to use it. And sometimes they were written down and sometimes they were not. So sometimes they might go with a cottage, you know, if you're the, if you're the, um, you know, if you pay rent for this cottage, it also gives you the right to graze two cows, two pigs and a sh sheep and some, or whatever, you know, geese or whatever. Um, um, and it becomes a huge point of argument uh, in, the 19, in the 18th century about whether it's a good use of land. And the people who win are the people with the agency and the power who have the ability to enclose it because it goes along with this argument that we've got to improve this. The population is growing massively. We have a limited amount of land. We've got to improve it. And so in the 18th century, enclosures were synonymous with this idea of improvement. So people would talk about improvements and what they meant was actually enclosures. So they'd mean that huge amounts of land that were kind of they might look like fields or moorland and people would graze, you know, if you were a villager, you'd have access to it to graze a few sheep or cows or whatever it is. The landowner then comes along and says, no, I'm sorry, we can't do that. I'm going to put a fence around it uh, and um, I'm going to use it for uh, probably sheep or cattle. Um, I need it. Sorry, off you go. Um, and it devastated a lot of people's economy. Um, and the central question of my book was, uh, OK, well, if Lando's in doing that, are they taking responsibility for those devastated people? So that it's their land, they have the right to do it, but they are changing the domestic economy of, you know, hundreds of people. And so how much responsibility are they taking for that? And the answer, of course, is various. And the answer is generally not very much. And that's why you have people leaving the lands, going off to the cities where there's this growing industry. And one of the reasons we're an industrial country, we, we, you know, the industrial revolution was so massive here, was not just the kind of technological discoveries. It's because it's because people were kind of flocking in, flooding into the cities looking for work because they weren't weren't able to support themselves on the land. And, um, and one of the other things that grew out of it is the allotment movement and I think it was it's extraordinary because if you go to France or if you go to kind of Eastern Europe you quite often see people have they were in little small holdings and they might have a few cows and a few sheep and it's a kind of normal thing to do and that's quite unusual in Britain and that becomes is because of this fight between farmers who want their um, who want their laborers to be hungry hungry for work so hungry for work that they'll come and work for starvation wages and if you give them big allotments big small holdings they're not going to be they're not going to come work for you for almost nothing because they'll grow their own food they'll have their own meat they'll have their own milk from their cow and so the allotments became farmers would kind of grudgingly 
supply them, but they were always too small to really support people. And that was the same with the clearances in Scotland as well. Um, what we now think of as the um, crofts, which were deliberately sized so that you could just about support or semi-support yourself. But those, what had been peasants, people working on the land, had to then, were forced into the cash economy. They had to go and work because that was the, the perception was that the nation needed bodies, cheap bodies, to kind of be fed into the cash economy. And it was an extraordinary, you know, like it wasn't a moment in time, but it was an extraordinary change. Yeah, and I hadn't appreciated that that was probably one of the push factors in the Industrial Revolution. Like, obviously, there's a lot of other things, there are lots of other go- things going well, on yes. at the moment. Yeah. Um, and was maybe one of the small push factors which made uh, essentially Britain industrialised first versus mm. some mm. others because people essentially going to the cities and yes, mm. there's opportunity, but why were they looking for opportunity? It was partly because um, they were pushed out. Um, the other element which I hadn't understood, which was really interesting, and it was versus, say, food historians versus um, economic historians, uh, was around bread. Yes. And one of the first, uh, is it pronounced the Aziz of bread? I think it's the sizes of bread. The sizes of, of bread, where uh, essentially there was a kind of economic control, and economic historians have tried to study this, but I'm not sure the data uh, has been uh, it's quite <laughs> has funny, been good enough. Yeah. And then obviously yeah. the food historians look at it. I mean, what are the lessons you you take away from from that? And I guess we there's been a little bit of debate um, on it has resurfaced post pandemic as to whether we should have uh, controls on food. Mm-hmm. Is there price gouging? Mm-hmm. Um, are there limits? Are there market limits? Because I guess the market argument is, you know, if uh, if there's a storm and you suddenly charge a thousand dollars for your ice shovel, um, and then uh, and then you go back, you'll never sh- shop at that shop again because you feel you've been price gouged. Mm. But actually, when you're thinking about food and things, it's a little bit more complicated than that, and maybe the market won't work in in such a way. Although we've uh, we've seen it in the platforms uh, where some of them, uh, you know, decided not to list people who that we thought there was too much price gouging in terms of of, of what we were doing. But yeah, anyway, on bread and yes. bread and history. Yeah, so I found the bread the bread story really fascinating. So we'll do bread first and then price gouging. So that's, a, I think, a slightly different subject. So the assizes of bread were Britain's longest running pieces of food legislation. It starts in about 1256. Though It's so long ago, nobody can really be sure. And it's basically formalised shrinkflation. So what happens is that uh, the assize, so assizes, if you, you've heard of the county assizes, it's, um, it's basically local courts. And the local courts get together with the landowners who are reducing the grain and maybe with somebody who represents the bakers. And they go, OK, how much does grain cost at the moment? Whatever it is. That means that bread is going to be... The price of bread will not change, the weight of it will. And I was always very perplexed as a kind of reader of English literature why there was always this thing called the penny loaf. And there was a penny loaf in, you know, in Smollett and there's a penny loaf in Dickens and then there's a penny loaf a century later and you think, how does this happen? And basically it's because the sizes of bread say you will, you'll pay one penny for your loaf, but it's just that as grain gets more expensive, the loaf gets smaller. And then when the price of grain drops again, the loaf gets bigger again. So this is the idea. And it was very effective because it meant that um, for the poor, they could be seen 
it was a kind of piece of sort of interventionist legislation so the poor could see that they were being looked after, that they could always afford something. Um, and But it was also very effective for landowners because actually, whereas it was necessary to have it because the cost of um, wheat might go up and down, it took attention away from them and onto the bakers because the bakers were the people who had to implement it. And that's what I found so fascinating. And it seems like that's the first moment in British history. It, I feel it's kind of where this our sort of relationship to our supermarkets has grown from. This idea that the bakers, the retailers, those are the people who are very visibly, very visibly going to kind of control this relationship. They are going to decide, you know, you know what it is that they can afford to to give you um, to eat. And, and there are, you talk about these economic historians. I think there's lots of kind of hilarious tables with impossible to read, you know, uh, kind of economic um, sort of algorithms about, you know, if this kind of bread was this weighed this much then brown bread would weigh a bit more and then there's a, a finer white bread would weigh less and you know this is how it would all relate to each other and there were uh, the tables were shared in the 13th century and um there were mistakes in them you know and so it's not surprising that actually it was quite complicated but it lasted it lasted for nearly 600 years extraordinarily until there was much more kind of pressure in the late night in the late eighteenth century on uh kind of you know urbanizing populations and there was a lot of kind of there were a lot of um food riots particularly in the late in the late eighteenth century um and it was seen not to be working so it was abolished in London and then abolished in later in the rest of the country in about eighteen thirty six I think but coming to your point about price gouging for me I think the our extraordinary relationship with our supermarkets starts there starts in medieval england because we now look to our supermarkets to legislate about all kinds of things you know about they decide on rationing in the pandemic they decided on rationing who could buy how much you know pasta or whatever it was you know that was short um when we had the it was this summer, wasn't it, or kind of earlier in the spring when there were problems about uh, distribution, particularly of salads, you know, of fresh, f fresh fruit and fresh vegetables. And all our, you know, our kind of friends in Europe were going, ha, 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 we can still get fresh tomatoes. <laughs> you know, it's because our supermarkets have decided that they're going to have a contract with their suppliers where they pay a certain amount and they're not going to deviate from that. And... Um, it means that the suppliers, if the you know if the cost of tomatoes goes up, the suppliers go well. We're not going to supply you then because we'll get more from this German supermarket or this Spanish green roaster, for example. And so that's why we had, um, that's why we had a kind of you know lack of kind of fresh fruit and veg on our shelves at that moment. But I think it's just an indicator of that kind of bigger position that those shops have got in our lives, and we feel it's normal for them to dictate, I wouldn't say dictate, but to kind of ration and kind of, you know, make those kind of decisions about how to share food out. Yeah. Whereas in, the, in, yeah, in our lives, yeah. Well, that's a good segue maybe into um, a, a couple of elements um, in your own life or some other more fun uh, questions. Um, so I picked up that you spent some time 
um, in what was the then uh, Czechoslovakia yes. uh, teaching um, and being laughed at for uh, trying to suggest that Britain might have a little bit of a food uh, culture. Yeah, they thought that was hilarious. <laughs> they knew um, for a fact. We didn't. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. What did you learn from your time there? Do you think there's anything particularly uh, misunderstood? Or I guess this was a little bit, uh, just a little bit after the Berlin Wall came down, mm. which is in mm. your anecdote. So uh, a lot of that had, had changed. But yeah, maybe your uh, thoughts on spending some time there and either reflections on food or what was maybe misunderstood or what you yeah. learned. Yeah, so two things uh, about what's now the Czech Republic, but it was then Czechoslovakia. So I lived in this little town called Liberec, which is just um, just north of Prague. And um, I was introduced to carp for the first time. Mm -hmm. I couldn't believe that carp was their kind of Christmas dish. Yeah. Um, But it was. And so uh, I I wasn't there for Christmas, but, you know, I kind of, you know, they shared it with me at Easter, I think, and we learned all about it. So that's the first time I understood that carp was eaten, you know, because it isn't any longer. I mean, it used to be eaten in Britain. It was brought in as a kind of... And a celebration dish, not only. a celebration dish, yeah, but no longer. So that really fascinated me. But also, um, the Czech Republic, I was there in, from, I think, January to June, and there was very, very little fresh fruit and vegetables in the markets and in the shops, you know, lovely bread, um, very lo- lovely cheese you know they, the, the food they had was quite kind of you know solid but very you know it was good it was nice very good beer very good mm-hmm. beer um, and I remember going to Poland which is a bit of, uh, and just seeing all this kind of fresh fruit and veg in the market in Poznan and thinking oh my god I haven't seen that for for months and I I don't know why 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 Poland managed it and Czechoslovakia didn't but this question I ask myself of kind of about, you know, how much should government intervene in food? You know, I think Czechoslovakia is probably an example of too much government intervention, you know, or it's the problem of kind of, you know, state planned agriculture when, you know, you don't, it, it isn't allowing entrepreneurs to, you know, go over to somewhere else and you know and bring in kind of fresh food so their diets probably suffered a little bit because of it um yeah so i'm not you know i i think that broadly governments have a role to play in our food you know in our kind of food system uh and an important one but i wouldn't I wouldn't give our food system over to a government. Yeah. You know, you can see how it, it's it where that work. balance is. And I think yeah. actually there's a lot of work, like you mentioned on the transition thing about food security. So there's one element of sustainability, but there is another element, particularly in Britain, where we could be more food secure. And maybe the government might have a role in, I suppose they call it market shaping, where you shape your own domestic market, but don't necessarily uh, control it, but you set the conditions for it. Yeah. Maybe um, another fun one would be if you went back then to any time, yeah. anywhere, um, who do you have for dinner yeah. and what do you eat? Because you've, you've written all of these books um, from Jane Austen's time and yeah. Dickens and the like, um, just showing, you know, the really fascinating recipes they, they might have eaten and actually what it says about either class or all the time. Uh, but maybe if you're going back anytime, anywhere, 
uh, what are you eating and what are you having for well i dinner? mean the the offer of having dinner with either dickens or jane austen is just too irresistible <laughs> really um it's such a good question and i i'm a i'm a sort of um snapper up of trifles kind of food historian i don't focus on a particular period and so i if you dropped me in any period i would be absolutely fascinated okay. to find out you know what people are eating and um, what they think about it, you know, yeah. you know. So, if I was kind of, if I was dropped into a sort of medieval village, for example, and uh, I have a fair idea of what the Lord is going to be eating mm. and what he thinks about it, you know, because there are records, there's lots of visual records of, you know, twelfth, thirteenth, fourteenth century sort of feasts, you know, Chaucer. Uh, and all the rest of it, when they'd have this kind of emerging sort of middle class, you know, we know about some of the things that they would eat. Um, but what I would love to know is, uh, I go right back in my book to sort of, um, to early medieval, so it's a sort of what we call the Anglo-Saxon period, um, when 10% of the people are slaves right. in Britain. And we don't know and what they ate. They, well, we do actually mm -hmm. probably know what they ate because there were kind of there were records of uh, the reeve, the guy who would look after an estate. There are some records. There's one from Bath Abbey from the late eleventh um, century where it says, no, early eleventh century. Sorry, before ten sixty six. So before this massive kind of Norman invasion, where he says, uh, you know, this is my job. It's, I have to make sure that you know the the shepherd gets some sheep milk and some cheese and I had to make sure the slaves get some beans and all the rest of it um, but I would love to know what people f thought about it so we have mm. inklings of what people ate and the other thing that I find totally fascinating is our relationship to foraged food because mm. we have this idea now that everybody in the past foraged it was just a natural normal thing to do but the records of it are really scant and there seems to be a perception that people did not forage, that you could forage for medicine. Yeah. And that was kind of okay. Or you could eat, pick blackberries if you're a child. Yeah. But that foraging for food in the hedgerow was quite, or in the fields was quite shameful. It indicated you couldn't afford to, you know, eat it yourself. And so that's one of the mysteries that if you if you offered me a, you know, a time capsule. I would love to go back to a yeah. village at any period, actually, and try and find out what really what people thought about the food they were eating. Did they love it? Did they kind of hanker for something different? We know that they sometimes hankered for better bread, mm. you know, softer bread, whiter bread. Um, what did they think about food that was yeah, out there? In that's the food? fascinating. And that puts in the context your chapter on warts um yes. and those sort of herby um elements and then also just this whole go back and forth on how, what people think about nettles like a yes. nettle soup but actually yeah. we we go back and there is this little bit of it we have this romantic notion that oh you know you forage for these nettles and you get the soup but actually at the time it's like well you know nettle soup is only if you really couldn't uh, afford to have anything yeah. else it's the lowest of the low yes. in, in yeah. order in yeah. order to eat yeah or um, you might have it and just not tell anybody. You know, it's very, very yeah. hard to know. Yeah, that'd be that'd be interesting. I, I think I would do a, a classic, and I, I'd be really interested in in Shakespeare's um, eating and yes. what he ate, and what maybe he ate with his um, crew and, and company um, and things like that. I suspect but I meat, know. beer, bread. Yes. Yeah, but how much veg? You know, because they don't talk about the veg. They probably had it. It's probably quite a wide variety of yeah, veg, and what nuts, they ate. and all this bit. Um, 
was it different amongst the company of actors and and all of that in that time? So I think that's quite interesting. And because Vita, Vita, quite a interesting part of um, his plays which、mm. come through. So yeah, I'd be interested、yes. in like whether the, whether that was a thing. When that's actually maybe quite a good segue into、um, your own writing process or, or writing day.、Um, do you have an element where you're doing a lot of this research? Like you say, you're kind of picking things、mm. and, and ideas、mm. and. Do you tend to write sections by hand or in bursts, or、mm-hmm. how do you think about writing? Do you have a particular process, or does it just come about、um, organically over the years? Well, I work、um, four days a week at、um, Penguin Books, actually. So my writing is quite concentrated into Fridays, Saturdays,、mm-hmm. and Sundays.、Uh, and for this book, I and then a sabbatical, you know. And so. For my last book, I had a few months, and this book, I also had a few months, seven, seven, you know, six months, and it's so little time. You have to really knuckle down and do it. And at the beginning of my sabbatical, I was thinking, oh, I'll go off and go on holiday, and、yeah. I'll see my family. And then I kind of started working. I was thinking, no, I really won't. I just need to get my head down. And so what I do is I do most of my research in the library, in the British Library,、mm-hmm. which is amazing. It's such an incredible resource. It's incredible. That it's free to use, you know, so exciting. You can go in and take out a a, a herbal of beautiful, beautiful illustrations of strawberries or dandelions or something, you know, published in the seventeenth century, and you just have it and hold it, it turn the pages. It's just so wonderful, and、um, and so I would, yes, I would kind of. Try and be quite efficient in my reading.、Um, read a lot. Try and kind of, and then just keep a kind of, you know, magpie-like. Pick out the things、mm. that were interesting that kind of fit together, and then I and then handwritten notes when you're reading. Then no, I kind of keep t- typed. Type to, I type notes, type, type, and then I can kind of search for what I'm, it,、yeah. I'm, I'm looking for in my search notes, and then I'll have a little document that's probably going to end up being my chapter when I put in the things that I find. Unmissably、mm-hmm. interesting, and then the chapter sort of emerges shape from them. Yeah, yeah. And then, do you consider yourself more a historian then, or more of a writer? Because I guess your writing, when I read it, flows into what I guess people are saying as this narrative nonfiction. A story comes out as opposed to just a collection、mm. of facts,、okay. and there's argumentation <laughs>、yeah. and ev- evidence、yeah. within that. And there's some. I would go so far as to say there's some style. It's not the, you know, you can have something which is sort of an encyclopedia. Although actually they have style as well. Yeah. Tries to nudge towards the neutral. Yeah. Whereas a, a writer will have something to it, and obviously I think your writing nudges to something which has a style, also has a story. So. Are you conscious of, of of that, and do you consider that, or do you still consider yourself more from a historian route, the sort of argument and the evidence part of things? I don't really think about it at the time. Actually, I think I, I guess I think if I'm interested in it, then I hope other people will be interested、mm. in it.、Um, and some things I find really funny. You know, some things I put things in if I, if they amuse me or if I'm interested in them.、Um, And there were kind of a couple of chapters where I started writing them, and I just wasn't interested enough. Yeah, I started trying to write a chapter on sweet potato, and I just thought,、yeah. you know, something I just don't care enough. Easy to edit out then if you don't care about it. <laughs> <Gone> . Yeah, <laughs> you know, you know. Which, and、um, I'm sure sweet potatoes are really fascinating. I just didn't find the fascinating stuff about it. So I'm not terribly conscious of trying to do one thing or another 
you know, I just put it together and try and I edit constantly. Okay, so you edit as you go. I edit as I go. So I write something and then think it's too long, too long. Get rid, get rid, get rid, or kind of re rephrase it, change it. Sometimes move things around. I think particularly with this book because I'm trying to pull in not just the story of different foods, but about the way people thought about them at the time or the way people were thinking about quite big subjects about, you know, uh, economics or responsibility or whatever. So I'm trying to kind of pull in, you know, occasionally a bit of Adam Smith or Edmund Burke or something, you know, a, a tiny bit. I'm not, but only as, as they relate to my argument. And so I'm very conscious that I need to try and explain that, explain why I feel it's relevant to kippers, for example. So Adam Smith has this whole chapter at the end of Wealth of Nations on herring, which I found totally fascinating. I thought, I've got to put that in, got to put that in. But how do you weave it in? Because there's so many bits of that story to tell. So that's the hard bit for me, is the structuring, the kind of the story and the thinking around it. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And how important is um, are your Yorkshire roots to how you are today? I mean, obviously, I think you, you've been in London for a while now. Yeah, probably go back. But it, it's like you know, there's a there's a feeling of this kind of north south divide uh, a little bit. But actually, when you when you travel around, it gets even sort of deeper than that. So you you know, Yorkshire people feel very Yorkshire. It's not just the north south. Um, element is that quite important to you or your writing? I not consciously, but I'm. I know it is because I know that I'm completely fascinated by uh, anything that comes out of Yorkshire, and in in Yorkshire has this kind of age old kind of rivalry with Lancashire as well, mm. and so I was conscious that I had to kind of very deliberately kind of stop thinking about Lancashire as a Yorkshire person would, and try and think about Lancashire as a you know, it's a food historian would. Um, so, but yes, the North-South divide and where that comes from and whether that is is natural or somehow imposed, somehow has that grown out of our kind of historic, which I think it actually probably has uh, to a degree, um, that I find really fascinating. Yes, as you say, I kind of grew up. I grew up in Leeds in Yorkshire, and Yorkshire was very much Yorkshire is a very sort of larger than life county. It's very kind of proud of itself, um, and I didn't, you know, it's proud of its kind of food and its kind of north, you know, its northern roots and all the rest of it, in the way that say Scotland is. Yeah. And so I really recognise that kind of idea that you get in, particularly in Scotland, of this is what Scottish food is. Um, and if you translate that to places like Ireland, where its food story has been much, much more kind of beaten around by, you know, by kind of the Anglo-Irish kind of settlers and, you know, Ireland's kind of sort of peasant food, I suppose, was really kind of erased as much as possible by sort of colonial, you know, actions. Um so I find that kind of regional, I think like you possibly, because I come from this kind of quite proud county, I find those regional differences really fascinating. Okay, that's quite a good segue into, um, I have a bit of fun section which has only come to mind around uh, of food and what you may uh, think of it and how we do it. So um, easier by question, how do you put peas on your fork? <laughs> uh, I love this. I love that. I have a chapter in Scoff on peas, and um, 
I had I don't even know if I'd really realised that the posh way I'm I'm putting posh in inverted commas here the posh way to eat any food is to squash it on the back of your fork. Yeah. Um, and so the fork's held the other way around. I say the other way around if people yes, sort of thinking about yeah, it and you put it yeah, on, yeah. maybe a bit of a mash and put your peas on. Yeah, exactly. No, I don't do that, yeah. <laughs> to be honest. To be honest with you. Because I love peas so much. Okay. I couldn't bear just to have three peas, Jeez. you know, and to, you know, eat, eat to, to eat three peas at once. I want a whole kind of fork full of them. Sure. And then uh, the meal towards the evening, should we think about, uh, I guess there's tea, high tea, dinner, supper. Um, what should we call that meal? We should call it whatever we want to call it. <laughs> I think this is the thing. You know, people say to me, you know, should you put cream or jam first on your, you know, should, on your scone or should you put milk or tea first in your teacup? I think you should do, you, in terms of those foods, you should experiment, see what you like, the taste of, and do that. And I think with, um, I love the fact that people call meals different things. I love the fact that in Yorkshire, you know, people have tea and maybe supper, and whereas in London they might have dinner. Um, I think regional differences are really fun, really important, but also actually really precious because anything that links you to your family and your community and your kind of your place in the world is important. And I think one of the and you said this is a fun fact and I'm going back to the kind of the serious the serious mm -hmm. point about my book but really one of the things that emerged from me is that the whole one of the kind of problems of our kind of globalized food system is that we've ceased to look after our kind of old our kind of community customs mm -hmm. and community and so anything that kind of unites a family or a community or or a nation you know or a nation or you know a county or whatever i think is valuable and and i think any you know and good food is valuable in doing that so going back to it which actually links all the way back to our story the variety yes. of the different things yeah. whether that's regional local and how you did it rather than having one strawberry to rule them all yes uh, would be uh, <laughs> the lord be of the strawberry um i guess the last one on that is um how do, well maybe how should we or how do you eat or drink maybe is that eat or drink soup oh, uh, um, yes. I, someone sh uh, i was with someone the other day and they they spoon their soup well i consider it backwards yes and then yes. some people who spoon it forward yes and then actually in the asian diaspora i mean we barely often we won't be giving a, a spoon because we'll drink it from the bowl which sensible. makes a lot more sense <laughs> for, also for the kind of soups that we have <laughs> yeah. although you have these sticker soups or, yeah, or, or yeah, whatever yeah, but yeah, yeah spoon backwards forwards and obviously the kind of answer is we don't care but it, how the how did different spooning soups come about oh my goodness i think um anything like pushing your peas on the back of the fork spooning backwards as yeah. you say any any of those uh elements of kind of etiquette about food mm. are an indication that i'm eating this slowly because i'm not starving right. you know it's yep. placing yourself in the status of somebody with leisure and plenty of food who has time to do all these things you know who doesn't have their tea at five o'clock because they've come in from the from the field starving who eats their supper or their dinner at eight or nine o'clock because you know they have the leisure to have afternoon mm. tea at three or four o'clock and and you know, then then 
you know what I mean? It's, it's a kind of separate, all these things are a kind of deliberate separation of the body and the body's need for fuel from the thing that we're, that we're eating. Yes. And then the upper classes do it, or the ones who are very wealthy, and then the middle classes. Everybody else follows. copies, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, is this, it was the same in a theatre, in our history of theatre. So, in fact, you could go back. So, Shakespeare's Globe, um, you had the groundlings, very noisy. It was all very mixed. You actually often were to talk through performances and that. Mm. And then those with wealth and power didn't want to be uh, associated with it. So they drew the audiences differently. You had to be quiet at performances. Mm. Mm. You started to segregate how mm. you could, uh, how mm. you go to theatre. So mm. um, a very classic process there. Mm. Great. Okay, final um, few sets of questions then. We might do a little bit of um, overrated or underrated. Oh, so yes. okay. I'll give you like a, um, a word or a th- uh, thing and you can either make some comment or say okay. whether it's overrated or underrated or some uh, commentary about um, what it is um, so I'm going to start with uh, tripe I guess we could think about offal in general but mm. tripe do you think is overrated or underrated um, well tripe has a whole history behind it of how it used to be we would now probably say overrated because tripe was kind of posher than fish and chips mm. for example um I'm going to reserve judgment. I'm going to reserve okay, the right that's to fair not enough. <laughs> because <laughs> there talk. are tripe lovers, and that's great. <laughs> I would say. So I, I think it's uh, my personal view is now that is a little bit underrated. Yes, I'm um, sure and right. it's um, underrated for me because uh, so I'm trying to eat less meat, but meat's been a really big part of how I've grown up in obviously food culture. Uh, but I've taken the view that it's um, really only just both respectful and sustainable uh, to appreciate everything, everything. about um, yeah. an animal. Mm. Um, and so if you have tripe, which can be done really well, then the fact that we waste so much of it, uh, I don't think is a good idea. And it because it has really cultural connotations, mm. there's no mm. nutritional reason why we shouldn't eat uh, some of these things. No, so I maybe, obviously it swings totally and roundabouts yeah. and, yeah. and things, but uh, for me, although I know it probably just has to be uh, cooked quite well. Um, so another one on this is uh, gin. Do you think gin might be overrated, underrated, or any commentary on its history? So gin is fascinating because for a long time gin was very underrated because it had this kind of scurrilous past. You know, it was kind of mother's ruin. It was the thing that, um, you know, women would drink instead of looking after their children. You know, and they, they had the gin craze of the 18th century, supposedly. Um, and the... Uh, the government kind of put a lid on the gin craze partially by legislation. And the government said, right, OK, we're going to get rid of... Um, nobody can can distill gin in their front rooms any longer. You've got to have a proper still and a proper licence to do it. And so gin suddenly became much harder to get access to. And for a long time, it was... You know, it kind of found tonic. It kind of became a sort of, you know part of the sort of colonials drink um and then it was but it was pretty underrated and then uh we had we've recently had a kind of gin renaissance you know people have challenged gin makers have challenged hmrc and said you know give us give us a license and hmrc have said oh okay we'll give you a license and so now you have lots of gin i suspect gin has maybe we've had peak gin yeah, <laughs> and as soon as you see drinks getting sweet, uh, you know, oh, if you have very sweet that, yeah. kind of, you know, um, 
You've gone from gin and tonics to gin and all of these other sorts of cocktails. If you get and gin things. and sort of very sweet cocktails or, you know, with lots of kind of very sweet kind of kiwi fruit and strawberry kind of flavours, I think that is an indication for fashion that it, we've had peak whatever it is and fashion will go and move on to whiskey or something that's kind of yeah, hot, interesting. You know, a bit more macho or bolder or harder or something. Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't thought about it that way. Yes, I'd, I'm not sure what I own feel about gin, but I kind of think some bits of alcohol have now got definitely overrated like alco pops and like alco pops are just not <laughs> not a very uh, good idea on that but anyway okay overrated and underrated on a couple of other things um goose oh goose is i tell in in stuffed i talk about the enclosures through the kind of prism of the goose you know because apparently our common lands were just flocks and flocks and flocks of thousands of mm. goose and everybody would own one and goose was the meat that most people could afford at Christmas. You know, you'd mm. save up and you'd have your Christmas goose. And I don't think it's underrated now. I just think it's been just wiped off the table mm. by Turkey, for example. Um, and it would be nice to see it come back again. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think I think Turkey's definitely overrated and yeah, goose underrated. So. Although, although that's also with... Um, uh, Asian food as well but also this fact that you cannot really I guess turkeys have it to a certain degree but you can't really fast grow geese no, no. and so as part of that as being part of the slow movement and therefore essentially being forced seasonal because mm. of that and then mm. all of those uh, connotations and mm. but really if you go like into it. a supermarket you might well be able to buy a jar of goose grease mm. for your roast potatoes and very delicious mm. they will be too but it's very unlikely you'd be able to buy a, a you know a goose at christmas and actually i guess that goose fat might have been from the christmas before anyway because it lasts for a very it long time it does last for a long time yeah. so i'm not even yeah. sure how yeah. Uh, yeah. where it would where it would come from um okay and one more on this which you could have mentioned uh briefly uh, and maybe it'd be the history rather than overrated and underrated but you could do so as well is herring oh totally underrated that's an easy one <laughs> so herring has this massive role in our history uh and we've just sort of turned our back on it you know all the, the whole scot particularly in scotland you know the scottish clearances were done for herring you know all these people were pushed off the land and told to go and fish go on there's all this herring out there just go and make you know like i was saying before become part of the cash economy you know fish earn your living um and so people had tough lives you know following the herring shoals as either fishermen or the girls were the you know uh, herring girls on land and they'd follow them all the way down the east coast from scotland orkney down to cresta down to great yarmouth um live in huts gut the fish and you know put them in pickle them and salt them and all the rest of it herring's been an enormous part of our uh, our life and in the 70s we had to we'd overfished we had to stop fishing it for a while let the stocks build up again but if you look at holland for example you know it has its herring feasts and it has sort of mm. special days when they celebrate them and we have herrings in the form of kippers particularly a very british way of eating herring we've just kind of forgotten about it and i think you know oily fish anybody who's kind of writing about food and health at the moment will say oily fish is really good for you you know it's good for all kinds of your bones and your I, i'm not i'm not a you know i'm not a kind of i'm not a medic but 
um, it's a very useful part of the diet and I think we've let it just go. Sure. I was in Copenhagen earlier this year and I was just in a restaurant and I asked them, what's your special dish or what's the dish I should most try? And no doubt, first one, yeah, we have this form of open herring yeah, that you should yes, try and we're very yes. proud of and yeah. they did it in a certain really way. Really delicious, yeah. So definitely yeah. with that. Yeah. Great. Okay, last couple of questions. One is, um, are you working on any particular uh, current projects or are you excited about anything? Obviously, you, you'll probably be talking about uh, your book quite a lot, but is there, are you looking forward to a, a, another project or something already or what are you spending your time on? Um. Well, the, the book flattened me. <laughs> So I'm going to recover right. a bit, talk about it a bit, I hope. Um, I have long wanted to write about f our religious festivals and food mm. and what they mean and why they're important and how they bring communities together or not um, and how they are the kind of one, two sides of a coin, feasting and then fasting. And we've kept the feasting we've lost the fasting and I'm really fascinated about how the fasting is also part of our communal health yeah but our physical health as well and so it's it'll be something in that direction not sure what mm, interesting and will you concentrate on uh, British festivals because I guess with other cultures they've kept their fasting a little bit more obviously we have uh, towards Easter and um, Ash Wednesday um, and the like uh, within that but then if you, if I think of South Asian and all of these other type of, of festivals and, and the interlink with mm -hmm. uh, the interlink with food is quite interesting and some of them actually I, I think of um, uh, the uh, Jainism um, some of those are essentially vegetable festivals mm -hmm. as well they're not mm -hmm. necessarily mm -hmm. surrounded mm -hmm. around meat yes, so you're interested yes. in it all or will you concentrate because of the British roots on, on Britain or probably yet to decide yet? I think yet to decide because you know uh, what you've just said is really interesting and I think this is probably you know we learn a lot in Britain from other countries you know we've learned a huge amount from you know you know immigrant cuisines and the way that uh you know people have kind of opened restaurants to yeah. us from you know from Chinese or Indian cuisines and all the rest of it you know that's kind of flatten our kind of rather our instincts yeah. to be very hierarchical things and yes we should definitely I, I, I think we there's so much we can learn from other cultures at the moment for example um this is this is a, a statistic that um in, uh, medics talk about in terms of ultra processed mm. food is that you know our consumption something like 60 percent of our calories comes from ultra processed food very mm. high um in portugal apparently 10 percent. you know so clearly other cultures are able to kind of keep ultra processed food food that is becoming obviously bad for our health mm keep it at bay and I'm really interested in how food cultures keep us are resilient yeah. in that sense and also what we what we absorb or not so that, like this idea of a British curry you know is obviously wasn't around 500 <laughs> years ago yeah. and, and yeah. how we how yeah. we acquire that well that's a really fascinating project um and then the last question would be do you have any um life advice for uh listeners either about being a historian or being a writer or anything to do with food um, about how you and you think back about your own path that you'd like to share with anyone um I mean I sort of fell into being a food historian sort of by 
accident. You know, I'd always loved writing. I thought I wanted to write fiction. Mm-hmm. And I suspect if my, if my <laughs> advice is anything, and I'm not going to, you know, tell somebody how to run their, you know, run their life, but don't assume that fiction is the only way of writing. Yeah. I think is the is is what I learned. Um and then I well, I was working for the British Museum press the publishing bit for the British Museum and I discovered that they published books on food history and it was like falling in love I kind of discovered you know I'd never knew that it was even a subject and this is you know 20 years ago or more and um so finding that kind of subject that just feels so right to me was really transformational and then thinking well maybe there is more to this writing lark than just writing novels <laughs> Great. Well, that sounds like excellent advice. So I will once again highlight, and for those um, who are on the video, Stuffed, A History of Good Food and Hard Times in Britain, uh, which will be out in November in the UK. Uh, I highly recommend it. And thank you very much. Thank you so much. It was such an interesting conversation. Thank you. Hope you enjoy the show. Do like and subscribe as it helps others find the podcast.